It's hard to hear the truth with so many people talking. Join your host as he engages in unfettered conversation with folks sharing their perspective on how businesses, political policies, technology, and world events impact their families and communities. If you want to turn your thoughts into actions, listen to the Brother of Light, dropping wisdom in your left ear and knowledge in your right. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Trans24, Marie Claire, GQ, Glamour, Moscow Magazine, and uh, several other venerable uh, media institutions. Uh, She has written uh, two books. One is uh, God and Country, How Evangelicals Have Become America's New Mainstream, and All the President's Women, uh, by her and Barry Levine, Donald Trump, and the making of a predator. Uh, Miss Elfazi can be reached uh, on her website, which is MoniqueElfazi.com. And uh, she her book is also available on Audible, Amazon.com, uh, and it is published through Hatchet Press. Uh, Miss Elfazi, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? doing fantastic thank you for spending your time with us this morning um in your <clears throat> the reason for our conversation this morning is you have written a book um about um our current president um entitled all the president's women and uh it's donald trump and the making of a predator uh, would you uh share with us your process and motivation for being involved in that project yeah, so um, I, as I say in the book, this was a project that Barry launched, and right. he approached me to write it for him. Um, and my initial impulse was, uh, you know, when he first came to me with the proposal, my initial impulse was to say no, because I think I, like everybody else, had was sort of overwhelmed by these stories of, about Trump and women and and, you know, there was an incredible ick factor to it. And the mm-hmm. idea of immersing myself in these stories day after day after day was pretty unappealing. And I was going to say no, but I asked them to give me a couple days to think about it. And I spent some time just sort of thinking about what it would mean to say no. I thought you in an earlier conversation, I'd been thinking a lot for the past few years about the, the idea of complicity and about silence equaling complicity. Mm-hmm. And I started to think that, you know, I hadn't thought the project out, but once it came to me, if I were to say, no, I don't want to do this because it makes me uncomfortable or, you know, I find it disgusting and just walked away from it, then would that then make me complicit mm-hmm. in you know, the continued abuse and subjugation of women. And one of the other things is I have two sons and I always tell my sons that 
if you see something wrong and you don't stand up for it, then you become part of what's wrong. And I just thought if I'm going to teach that to my kids, I need to model it for them also. And it mm -hmm. just felt that I felt that to walk away from it because I didn't like the subject, because I thought the subject was uncomfortable, it made me uncomfortable or it was unappealing would on some level just be the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I agreed to do it. And the process was Barry um, ran the investigation. He and a, a team of reporters, but specifically two other women, Lucy Osborne and Whitney Clegg, uh, they went out and found the women and did most of the interviews of the women that had um, had personal encounters with Trump. I did most of the interviews for the last few chapters of the book but in terms of tracking down the interviews they did that and then they would send me transcripts and i wove it together into a narrative so that was our process gotcha yeah i know lucy osborne she's at she was at itv i believe right worked on that's right uh, that's good right. morning good morning britain right right uh you know i don't know lucy that well but, um and she did she was part of a channel four or bbc documentary mm -hmm. about this i think it was a bbc documentary that's correct. That's correct. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to listen to the book uh, on uh, Audible. And, uh, you know, uh, when I listen to it, it, you know, it's it's while it's it's interesting to read it um, when you hear these stories being told as narrated by you and Barry Levine, it is really quite shocking Um and I guess uh, the thing that I find most fascinating, and I know you and I have had this discussion, is how it relates to the, um, uh, the way that this current president has run um, his presidency um, based on this type of behavior. I know that um, there was a revelation, as you mentioned in the book, uh, in Access Hollywood, uh, and the tape and the allegations of sexual misconduct. Um, uh, I mean, I believe uh, that the relevancy of the book, given some of the turmoil that's happening in the United States, um, uh, coincides with what I read in the book. Would you care to expand on that uh, just a tad bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what became clear to me is in doing the, you know, going through the transcripts of the interviews is that it seems to me that for Trump, people are commodities or tools to serve his interest, right? Mm -hmm. So, and people's value, I think that, it, especially people that are not white men, I think their mm -hmm. value to him is, it only goes so far as their usefulness to him. Mm -hmm. um, and when they're no longer useful to him, he discards them. And and he seems to really, you know, one of the, a couple of the women in the book, but one of the women said, you know, when he grabbed me, it seemed like he didn't even realize that he was doing something wrong or offensive. Mm -hmm. like he just, you know, he doesn't seem to have any kind of sense of empathy or understanding of his the the impact of his actions on other people. Mm -hmm. And you know, he really seems to not be able to see those around him as fully fledged people with feelings and emotions and thoughts. And, you know, they do seem, he sees people kind of as cardboard cutouts, you know, as characters in his world. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to get too far into his head because 
I've never met the man, but you know, that's what right. comes across when you read people talking about him. Right. Well, what, what I found most interesting, um, and you and I've had this uh, discussion before is the time that I spent on, you know, season 10 of, of the apprentice being around him is, uh, the way that you identified his character and his traits based on his indoctrination of what manhood looks like is, is spot on um, to be able to witness it firsthand and to have conversation ab about it. Um, what I found really uncanny about the information that you provide in the book is that it is very unsettling and very uncomfortable um, to be around. Um, and he sort of cloaks it in this likable behavior that uh, he does this not just to women, but anyone that doesn't fit his uh, description of what, um, you know, success looks like. He's very transactional. He's a transactional leader, right? Uh, he does those things right. that are beneficial to him. And that's what made the book so intriguing to me and how you guys had allowed me the opportunity to contribute a small portion of uh, a, what I believe to be a well-rounded um, assessment of not just him as a person, but this sort of pervasive idea of white male leadership globally. And um, what, I, what I'd like for you to do is, would you expound on that? I know we had a discussion yesterday about the behaviors in men um, of power as opposed to it not being about the individual and more about this institution that allows this behavior to to uh, run rampant. Right. Well, I'll start by saying I'm glad you feel like we captured him because, you know, you you certainly know him much better than I do. You've met him and, um, and you know, you're the you gave us some insights that were invaluable to us. So thank you for that. No but, worries. Um, thank you. Yeah. You know, when I. The, the, in the process of doing the book, you know, we'd had Weinstein and Epstein and Cosby and all these, you know, all these mm -hmm. things that, you know, had their striking, striking resemblances to one another. And, but I think it was, I think before I did the book, I thought about it in terms of individual men behaving badly, right? Mm -hmm. And in the process of doing the book and thinking about this more and talking to people, I realize, yes, there are individual men behaving badly, but also more than that, you see this really with Epstein and Trump and Weinstein is they protect one another. And, mm -hmm. and because they are at, they are controlling the levers of power. I say they, I mean, white men, they, they represent the institutions and systems of our country and not just our country, many countries. Right. So mm -hmm. of course you have to, you know, uh, target the men who are behaving like this. But really, if you want change, it needs to go far beyond individual men. And we need to be looking at things like institutions, organizations, societal mores and norms. And the change really needs to go far beyond individual people. It needs mm -hmm. to be, it needs to be much more systemic, I think. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I, I noticed in the first chapter, and if you don't mind, I want to read um, this quote that you had um, included in the first part of the book, you guys had included in the first part of the book called Accessories Make the Man. And there's a quote, uh, it says, my favorite part of Pulp Fiction is when Sam has his gun out 
in the diner and he tells the guy to tell his girlfriend to shut up. Tell that bitch to be cool. Say, bitch, be cool. I love those lines. End quote. Donald Trump 2005 in uh, Trump Nation, The Art of Being uh, the Donald. Um, do, do you, you know, of course, I want to ask your feelings on making that statement. I mean, I think as a man, I, I find it reprehensible to, to, to say those things out loud. And, and he said that in more uh, in person. But do you believe that or is it in your assessment that this that there's no surprise in how he speaks as the leader of the free world? to people that don't fit his acceptable definition of human beings. Do you, do you believe that that is his, um, that he is so comfortable um, in this space that he feels justified in some sense, if, if that question makes sense? Yeah, I think he does. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm not surprised. I would say that every time he says one of those things, I'm surprised by it. And I'm surprised that the leader of the free world, as you put it, is is has those attitudes. I, you know, it's been three and a half years and I am surprised every single day that we're here. You know, I just can't quite believe it. And just when you think you've sort of understood who he is you know like when you see how he's handling what's happening now with the black life matter black lives matter protests it's constantly mm-hmm. surprising it just you know there are, he just crosses the lines of what we think of as societal norms on a daily basis and goes further and further mm-hmm. so i would never say it's it's not surprising it's constantly surprising and yet i yes i think it fits with what we know of him. And I think it's very much in line with, you know, we, we went back and looked at his parents for a reason. We, you know, we wanted to, you know, when we, when we set out to write this book, my feeling was, okay, we have these stories. We know these stories, obviously, you know, Barry really tracked down a lot of new stories and there's a lot of new information in the book. But for me, it was important that the book be not just the stories, but what do they mean and how did we get here? And one of the things that our editor encouraged us to do was, to try and understand how he became who he is. And so Mm -hmm. we went back and did as much research as we could about his parents and his childhood friends and things like that. And he really has, you know, he grew up in a family where his father was very dominant. His father was a businessman, which, you know, explains Mm -hmm. part of Trump's transactional approach to relationships. And his mother was very much the submissive housewife who stayed at home. Trump described her as the ideal woman because she cooked and cleaned in darn socks and when his father had to go out and you know run out to a business thing, she never complained. She understood that that was more important, right? So, um, right, right. You know, he has these incredibly retrograde attitudes that he <laughs> hasn't matured out of, and to see that playing out on the world stage, and you see it when he interacts with people like Angela Merkel and things like that. He he seems to be incredibly uncomfortable around women that he can't dominate and women that he doesn't have some kind of power over. You know, you see his incredible discomfort with Nancy Pelosi. And um, I think all that comes from his childhood. Right. You mentioned in in the second chapter where, and I find it interesting because I was going to ask you this question and you answered it actually, is that in 1990, his father, Fred Trump, said to him, uh, you can have a thousand mistresses if you want, but you can't have just one. And whatever you do, you never, ever let yourself get caught. 
you know, as a mother of, of, of young, young boys, um, and I have a son myself, um, you know, I just, I have no words for that type of, um, toxic masculinity when it comes to teaching men how to interact with women. And so it then justifies how he would, would you, let me ask you this. Would you say that it? first of all, you guys have done a great job of explaining the childhood and the psychosis of this person who was, um, you know, taught by these, you know, by his father and having this almost non-existent sort of caricature of a, of a mother and woman. Um, would you say that these long health beliefs are so ingrained in, in who he is that, and especially at his age right now, I think he's what, 70, that he is not going to be able to ever see the light of day? For lack of a better term. Oh, I think there's zero chance that he changes these attitudes at this stage in his life. I mean, you know, I'm not a psychic, but there, you know, we spoke right, to right. We, we spoke to one of his childhood friends <laughs> or somebody who had, had been in school with him and a few years behind him at school, but they were family friends. Um, and he said, you know, he talked about how when they were, at the, so they went to the school called the New York Military Academy and, you know, an all boys mm-hmm. school and, and this this classmate of his talks about how, you know, it was a single sex school. There were no girls there. And so the way they learned about the opposite sex was through Playboy magazine. And I think Playboy mm-hmm. at the time had a series called something like the Playboy lifestyle or something. And they all kind of em- wanted to emulate who ha- Hugh Hefner. And, and that was how they learned about. And, and this guy says, you know, that's what we did when we were schoolboys, And then we got older, I got older and, and he's speaking about himself and said, and I realized that that wasn't an appropriate way to view women, to interact with women. And I changed. And he said, but when I look at Donald Trump, I see the 13 year old boy that he was in military academy. And he doesn't seem to have evolved at all beyond that point. So mm-hmm. to answer your question, if from 13, you know, for the past 60 years, he hasn't evolved. I don't see why he would start to evolve now, especially when he is in a position of almost ultimate power. You know, right. there's nothing that's going to push him. You know, I think if, if Speaker Pelosi hasn't pushed him to see women differently, nobody will, you know. <laughs> right. right. And, and uh, to follow up on that, I think one of the most um, interesting things that when I read the book, um, and, and I would encourage all the listeners to, to, to grab all the president's women uh, by Barry Levine and Monique Alfazi and really get an understanding um, of the person that is leading our country and what makes some of his responses seem so natural. And, and again, if, if you can't get it on uh, Amazon.com or Audible.com, you can go to um, Hatchet uh, Book Group and the book is available there. You can buy it directly from um, the publisher. But one of the things that you had um, really highlighted for me and that I find most compelling is this unwavering support he he has among two groups, which is uh, white males and evangelical, uh, white evangelical Christians. Um, from your research and research that you and your team have done on uh, the president, why do you think that is? 
I think there are two yeah, things. Especially in American yeah, society. I think two things. I think they're similar, but not exactly the same. So when it comes to men, and let's be a little more specific, it's it, it tends to be men without college educations. That's more true of women than of men, but it's mm -hmm. also true of men. Um, if you look at the kind of the graphs of, you know, education level and support of the Trump, they're, they're inverse to one another. Um, and I think there's a, I think there's a pretty valid reason for that. If you're a white man who worked, you know, in the auto industry or, you know, wherever in kind of middle America with globalization, you saw your industries dry out, you know, or shrivel, you saw jobs leave America and, I think for them, their status, and, and they, and a lot of, you know, my first book was, as you mentioned, was about evangelicals. And I think what I saw then is that a lot of people felt like, felt that the country they grew up in and the country whose values they thought they understood was no longer the country they were living in. They didn't see themselves in, the, in a changing country, in a, you know, a country that was becoming far more diverse and more global. And I think that was scary for them, right? That's right. Change is often frightening for people and, mm -hmm. and they lost what they, you know, they lost, you know, safe, you know, I mean, this is nothing new, but, you know, jobs with safe pensions, the kind of thing where you get the gold watch when you retire or whatever, mm -hmm. that world didn't really exist. And they were left facing mm -hmm. a world that they didn't understand, that they didn't have the same primacy of place in. And Trump really spoke very directly to that that demographic and you know with his make america great again it was this kind of call to you know days mm -hmm. gone by and you know a time when you know white working class men were the you know the they were at the core of america you know they were the backbone of american the american economy i think he i think he taps into fear and insecurity in that demographic to a great degree um when it comes to evangelicals, I think that applies to them too. But when it comes to white evangelical women, there, you know, it's uh, when I started mm -hmm. writing the book, I struggled. One of the questions I had is, you know, he's he is so obviously sexist, right? And I just thought, how can and, and he, you know, and he denigrates women. He calls them dogs and horse face, and you know, he's he. There's just nothing uplifting about the way he talks about women, and right. you know, and and with the access Hollywood tape right. and grab them by the, you know, it's just hard to understand how any woman yeah. could think that's a good that's a good guy, right? And so I struggled to understand, mm -hmm. you know, what, or one of the questions I had was, how do women? How does any woman support him, especially religious women who have, you know, this this sort of you know, this moral code. And there are two things that I came to understand. One, in so in evangelical power structures or in the evangelical community, women, not always, but, you know, there's the, the, there are quotes in the Bible about women should be submissive to their husband. The evangelical community is a very patriarchal community mm. in that, you know, men are the head of the household. Right even wives are subservient to their men, you know, to their husbands, uh, you know, and not to mention daughters. And so there are two things that come with that. One, there's already an allowance for men, right? A lot of women, I mean, this is the more conservative era, This is more the conservative right. branch of the evangelical community, but I spoke to women who vote the way their husbands tell them to vote. Right. So, um, mm -hmm. so, wow. And 
you have when you have these kind of patriarchal family structures you get situations in which women are kind of i talk about this in the book or i quote people about this in the book where women are allowed not to make their own decisions they're allowed to kind of abdicate decision making to their husbands because their husbands are supposed to be in charge Mm -hmm. and so you know so in that sense Mm -hmm. even if you see a woman if a woman feels uncomfortable with what trump is saying if her husband says oh no this is who you should vote for they just do that right and there you know these power structures that Mm -hmm. we talked about before if you're a woman whose husband is working and you are a stay-at-home mother if your your status in life and in society is very much tied to your husband's status so when you get a situation where you know, men are losing, you know, white men who have, you know, of a certain socioeconomic class are losing their status because jobs are drying up or whatever. The women's status is linked to that. So the whole MAGA thing, even if it has has undertones or overtones of sexism, it still appeals to those women because it promises to elevate their husband status and by definition or by extension their status and the other thing that i think it's really important to remember is just how much that community hates hillary clinton and had trump been up Mm -hmm. against anybody else we may i have no idea but we may you know i'm not again i'm not some sort of psychic but we may have seen a very different outcome (laughs) many many people that i know did not vote for or many people that I spoke to for the book did not vote for Hillary for Donald Trump as much as they voted against Hillary Clinton. And that specifically, mm-hmm. I, there were many evangelical women that I spoke to who said, you know, we were really uncomfortable with him. But at the end of the day, when we thought, can we live with Hillary Clinton as our president? You know, because these are people who vote based on um, their beliefs about, you know, the the morality of abortion and. And by extension, judges and things like that, they just couldn't bring themselves to pull the lever for Hillary. That's interesting. You you had mentioned a um, um, an interesting topic. You had uh, you actually had an interesting phrase. You said benevolent sexism, but yeah, was something that I. And it's really the first time I had actually heard that. Would you, would you expound on yeah, that concept? Uh, yeah, it was concept? interesting. So I was talking to one of the women that I spoke to that I interviewed a few times for the book, a woman named Soraya Chamale, who wrote a book called Rage Becomes Her about female anger. And she's a feminist thinker. And, and I talked to her a few times and we were, you know, I was talking to her about the women that we spoke to that knew Trump and said, you know, he was really nice. He was a gentleman. He did this for me. He did that for me. And the way he treats Ivanka, you know, he really does seem to put her on a pedestal. And, you know, I said, how do we reconcile that with the, the sort of really kind of malignant sexism that we see? And she said, you know, there's a concept Mm -hmm. in feminist theory called benevolent sexism and it's this it's it's mm-hmm. and we see this a lot right with where right women on a pedestal women are kind of the fairer sex and they are to be taken care of and adored and pampered and 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 that all seems very nice right but at the same time it is still right. not 
seeing women as being on an equal plane to men. And so it's its own kind of sexism. It's benevolent sexism, but it is still not seeing women as equal. Right. Right. I get it. Okay. Now you have, you went to, tell us a little bit about about your background. You have a BA from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, You have an MSJ from Northwestern University. So you're no stranger to American culture and lifestyle. No, I mean, I was born and, and you raised are currently in the States, reside- so. Okay. And you currently reside in Paris. Paris. So, from an, so you have more of an international uh, bird's eye view of how, um, you know, the world is, is viewing America right now. Um, I mean, and you've spent much of your career focusing on people and groups that are that are disenfranchised and, and or misunderstood. Um, how, and, I, and I'm asking you a very broad question, I know, but from your circle of influence, what's, 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 the, what's the sentiment from, from people in your neighborhood, from the French, from your family here in the States um, on what's happening in America right now with, with, with this president? They think it's crazy. I mean, they nobody here can quite believe it's happening, right? Um, and and it, they're very not nobody, right? Trump certainly, you know, there's a far right wing here in France too, and he has his fans among that group. But for the most part, in Europe in general, they just they think the whole thing's crazy. I mean, America is sort of seen as a joke right now, or I mean, right now with all with everything that's happening in the last few days or weeks, it's, you know, it's a very tragic picture. I think not just, not just with the, mm-hmm. with the killing of George Floyd, but also with the handling of coronavirus in the U.S., which was just, you know, seen as a complete disaster here. You know, the, Europe shut down, right. handled it pretty efficiently. And the states, you know, the idea that, wearing a mask is becoming a political statement seems ridiculous from here, right? I mean, it's, it is mm-hmm. in European eyes, mm-hmm. very much a public mm-hmm. health state, you know, issue and, and nothing else. Um, so no, I mean, he's, he's seen as a, he's not taken seriously. He's seen as a buffoon, you know, you, I mean, we, you may remember there was that right. G7, G20 meeting, there was some meeting of world leaders where they were kind of making fun of him behind his back. And I think, you know, yes, I mean, yes, he, I he's not at all yes, taken seriously. And there is a little bit of, you know, sort of America's right. lost its mind. Um, and, you know, the, the book mm-hmm. is coming out in French in two and a half weeks, maybe on the 23rd. And, you okay. know, and, and okay. it's here, it's just being called The Predator. You know, they've lost any subtlety. And, you know, and people, you know, are responding. I mean, it, they can't get enough of it, right? It's like a crazy soap opera to them. It's like, you know, it, it, they, mm-hmm. it's very hard for Europeans in general to take him seriously at all because it's just so absurd to them that a man with those attitudes. Right. It's like ahead. the ultimate. Right. Rea- right no, I'm I sorry. Go ahead. Say that a man with those attitudes. Yeah, sorry. Like, go ahead. I was just saying, it's like the ultimate reality show, right? Only people's lives are, right, but from are, are away, at stake, it's like a right? The reality show—that's exactly what it's like, you know. And he's—he's he's a caricature of an American, right? So Europeans already think, with America, with its lack of gun control, you know, with they already see America as these kind of out of control cowboys, 
And he is the ultimate stereotype. Right. Mm -hmm. What I found interesting too, Monique, is that in the book, which I, because, you know, when I started speaking out on him in 2010, um, and there were several other contestants on the program that started speaking out on them as well. And I know you've been a journalist for the Associated Press. And so um, uh, I participated in, in, in that process. And a lot of times you begin to feel like you're the only one speaking out, right? And so when you write a book as, as well-researched um, as, and as well thought out uh, to paint a picture of, of how predators are made, you, you tend to feel like you're alone. And it wasn't until um, I read All the President's Women that I found that you guys had actually uncovered 45 new allegations of sexual misconduct, is, if, if, that's, if that's about right. I mean, it's, it's like there's already, it's, we're approaching maybe that we, that, you know, add your 43 to it that you can add a couple of 50 to it. And we're looking at about a hundred, I, I guess, how, what's, what steps do we need to take to dismantle um, this institution of sexism? Because I, and I'll say this, I found there to be a, 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 a lot of contrast between um, this predatory behavior as it relates to gender um, with what's happening to African-Americans in America today, those institutions are meant to subjugate. Could you expound on that just yeah, absolutely. a little bit from and your when perspective? It, when it comes to the numbers, I'll say that because of non-disclosure agreements and also because, you know, if you're a mm -hmm. woman with a story about the president, it's not so tempting to come forward because, you know, you know, you're just going to get, attacked by his supporters and raked over the coal in the press and things like that. So mm -hmm. there is zero question in our minds that there are many, many other women out there. You know, when the book came out, I got phone calls from people saying, you mm -hmm. know, I know somebody who he did this to, I know somebody who did that to, but they don't want to talk. And, and, you know, I, I certainly understand why a woman didn't, wouldn't want to talk. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I want to start by saying there's a lot more out there and, I forgot the second part of your question. I apologize. <laughs> oh, okay. No, that's okay. I this because as a recipient oh, of that really? non-disclosure agreement, right? Um, you're right. They had us sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, and it is very threatening, right? Uh, and I'll, I'll share this with, with you and our listeners to help uh, set up this next question. And, and, and that question is going to address why women don't speak up and why people don't speak up is that I had written a piece um, called the impotent billionaire. And my concern was what I had saw behind the scenes of this program was, uh, and look, I spent 10 years in the military in combat. So I've been around some pretty interesting characters and, you know, and when he says it's locker room banter, mm -hmm. I don't know what kind of locker room he's talking about, but it's a very different locker room than, you know, than, than I'm used to. Uh, in fact, those types of, of attitudes were unacceptable, right? So uh, that non-disclosure agreement um, um, that NBC had given us when I had 
spoken out. They were very aggressive. It was a million dollar fine to go against that contract. And what I was told, because I got a call from their business affairs in, per, in, in perpetuity, right? So that means that they were going to sue me to death if I said anything. And, and, uh, and they had, you know, we're all doing press tour and they were, you know, they, they owned your likeness, which wasn't very clear. And they became very aggressive to protect their, as I was told by uh, the legal team at the time, to protect uh, their product, uh, which was The Apprentice. And then therefore Donald Trump owns a piece of that. And so it began, if you take this piece down and remove it from all sites, we will then let you speak publicly. And they were very aggressive with it. And so, you know, being the combat veteran that I am, I'm like, mm-hmm. well, if you call, I'm all in, <laughs> right? So, so it became very aggressive. And that, that came at a personal cost to me. They became very uh, aggressive in their portrayal of who I am as a person. Um, I had to dig through some of, some of the reports that were put out there just to figure out that it led back to um, the, the very uh, uh, media empire that was going to silence my voice. So I, I guess for our for our listeners that say, well, how come these women didn't speak up? Um, I don't think they fully understand the fear that comes with um, dealing with, you know, these non-disclosure agreements. It's, it's not that simple. In your research, did you find that to be the case for those people that wanted to remain anonymous, that that those people that wanted to contribute to the book and maybe did contribute to the book, um, their stories and what they were afraid of. Could you share some of those uh, feelings? Cause, cause I, I thought it was, I, I thought it was just me. I can fully understand why women would not want to come forward with uh, how he counter punches, so to speak. Who declined to talk to us and, you know, and, and mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that we know of who declined to talk to us or who wouldn't return our phone calls even. And, and, you know, and we spoke to people who knew of other people who had, you know, we talk about, there's a journalist who covered him, David K. Johnson, who covered the casino industry in Atlantic city. So knew Trump, you know, from that time. And he mm-hmm. knows of, he says he knows the names of women who had abortions that were paid for by Trump. And, you know, those women will certainly never come forward, but there's, there's oh, certainly wow. a whole invisible tier of women it is look coming forward against a powerful man and let's look at weinstein as an example when these women came out against Mm -hmm. weinstein he hired a firm to go after them he you know we've now seen in the with the trial and every and and ronan farrow's book and so much of this has been made public you know there were targeted campaigns to discredit these women one by one by one and they were very effective right mm-hmm. so because they do it in the media it seems invisible to the public and they if you go after a, as a woman or you know a, a, as somebody not in a position of societal power if you go after one of these powerful men they do everything they can to destroy you when i to get to the earlier question which mm-hmm. i remembered you know we talked about uh, the, the sort of institutions protecting white men, powerful white men to the detriment of women. And I think what we see today right. even more clearly perhaps than, you know, I would argue even more clearly than how they keep women 
from attaining positions of power is how systematically the black community has been oppressed by institutions, you know, to a, mm-hmm. an even greater mm-hmm. degree than women from, you know, we talked about this before from everything to lack of healthcare, lack of supermarkets right. and healthy food, you know, poor educational. I mean, it's just, it's one, you know, it's one card after another and a deck stacked against minority communities in to a degree that, you know, it's just not even close to a level playing field. So, and again, and, and again, you know, right. At all. Those are institutions that I would argue are deliberately protecting the status quo because mm-hmm. the status quo means mm-hmm. they guard their power. Mm-hmm. Right. What message would you have for, because our listener base is very diverse, right? And, and, and I live in Texas, and so it tends to be, you know, conservative. Um, what what um, message would you have for those listeners who are still resistant to um, this idea that there is an institution that protects white males? Because they you know, they sort of self-identify, yeah. right? They feel like they're being attacked. And and uh, like you said earlier, their way I of life is being attacked. What, what message would you have for them that want to write us off as, <laughs> you know, as, as left-leaning liberals who want to attack this, everything that they hold dear? Especially when it comes to Trump, I don't think this is about conservative and liberal. I think it is about, I think it goes deep. Mm-hmm actually right or wrong in fairness. I really do. Uh, it sounds simplistic, but, and I think if you look now at what's happening with his handling of events of the last few weeks, you see Republicans finally having the the guts and the courage to say, you know what? No, this isn't okay. I don't mm-hmm. agree with this. And I think, look, I think power protects power. And I think that Trump, when he came into office and because mm-hmm. he is so you know, you are with me or against me because there's no compromise with him because of the, you know, if, you, if it was any other president any that we've had in the past, members of your own party will disagree with you, will, will go against you. Trump is like a mafia boss, right? You, you absolutely cannot go against him. And we see mm-hmm. people like Mitch McConnell and other Republican leaders just taking just indefensible stances because Trump requires them to do so. It's, you know, it's, it's my right. But more and more, you have very conservative Republicans saying, you know what, no, that crosses the line and I can't go that far with you. And mm-hmm. you see, you know, one by one, people in his party rebelling against him. And uh, so I actually don't think it's a, an issue of conservatism. I think it's an issue of courage. And I think that it's an issue of saying, you know what, gotcha. that is, you've okay. crossed a line that goes one step too far. And yes, you were in my party, but I'm going to do what I know is right. And I hope we will see more and more people do that because, mm-hmm. you know, my, my first book was written when George W was in power and was in office. And, you know, he was a very conservative right. president and it just wasn't the same thing. There's there's politics and differences of opinion, and then there is behavior and and policies that just go way beyond that. And look, I lived in two, I lived under two authoritarian regimes. I lived in the Soviet Union, 
and I lived in Egypt. And what Trump is doing now reminds me of those two regimes more than anything. He's crossed a line into, you know, he's moving well towards authoritarianism Mm -hmm. and it's up to his own party to stop it. Okay. Right. And and I think there's been very, I think one of the centrists came out today and had that conversation. I think Mitt, Mitt Romney has showed some semblance of courage in making comments. But um, if you're like me, I find it really fascinating how quiet uh, the GOP has been on some of the most outrageous statements that this man uh, has said. Is it, is it, is it connected to... Um, what you had mentioned earlier, that power, Absolutely. Uh, and power corrupts. protects power. And I think that, I mean, we've seen this president when, when, right. you know, when senators or Congress people challenge him, when they're up for election, he goes after them. He, I mean, look at what he's doing right now to Jeff Sessions, right? And, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. you know, and, and mm-hmm. I never thought I'd see the day when I'm defending Jeff Sessions, but, um, and I, you know, I'm not going to go that far, but, and <laughs> right. defend him, but, you know, he, there is nobody with the exception perhaps of Ivanka that he won't turn on. Um, and I think that if you are a politician mm-hmm. and this is your life, you know that he has the power to, you know, or may have the power to make you lose your seat. And I think people, mm-hmm. and I think that's the problem. I think, look, leadership demands courage. <laughs> and, and that's, it's not always an easy thing to do. But I, mm-hmm. to me, that's part of the contract. When you put yourself forward and you say, I'm going to be the representative of the people, that means putting the people before your own personal interests. And I think we've seen too mm-hmm. many politicians, you know, on both sides, but right now we're talking about the president. So it's specifically the Republican mm-hmm. Party at, at stake here. Uh, I think we've seen right. too many people put their own political survival before protecting the country, protecting their their constituents, and doing what is right. Mm-hmm. Do you right? Do you think that you know? And that leads to an interesting question because we both have said it's the GOP. Do you think this is still um, the party of the Republicans, or is there a a transition more from the you know, mega, I think is, is, is what they call it. I, I mean, in, in your research and the people that you talk to, because you really um, make a valid point about us moving towards um, an authoritative type of, of uh, presidency. You see that when he makes a statement on uh, calling out the, calling out the military on American citizens. Right. Um, do you, right. Do you, do you, uh, think this is still the party of the of the Republicans? You think it's still it's the party of Lincoln, uh, or even not George Bush right for that matter? Now, but it has been not even mm-hmm. four years. I, you know, the one thing that I will say about the United States is it has an incredible. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly self-correcting, right? It it tends not to go. I mean, look, we right. had the first black president who was a by American terms, a pretty left-leaning president, certainly not by European terms, but by, you know, I would argue there's no real left in America, but Mm -hmm. that's another discussion. But, you know, by American terms, he was, he's a pretty left-leaning president. And what did, what did America give us after that? You know, an incredibly, it's hard for him to call him right-leaning because I don't think he really has, you know, 
Right. He's right. Because right. I actually, it's difficult, right? What has what has right. amazed me about the Trump presidency is the the deftness with which he has used language imagery from that is is mm-hmm. you know sort of historically associated with very authoritarian regimes because I don't think he's that studied or that smart, dare I say it? And you just think, who's advising him? You know, there are things that he says and does that you right, think there's right. no way he figured that out. Right. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm underestimating him. But really pernicious, mm-hmm. um, frightening language and imagery, a lot of dog whistling to the far right, I think. You know, um, I did not think that he mm-hmm. was a white supremacist or nationalist coming in. And as much as I may have disagreed with him politically. And yet, you know, he does seem to really be speaking to and protecting. And that is, that's not, that's not a republic. That's not, that's not republic. Of groups, right. Something else completely, you know, I mean, certainly within the history of the the Republican party, you have. Right. Right. There is a Republican, there is a, there, you know, there, I think the mainstream Republican Party is not that. Mm-hmm. Where do you think, right, right, We're, and it's a good question because when I read through the book, you really set up this sort of, I, I can't even call it entitlement, but where do you think, because it is hard to define the, the Trump presidency, right, based on um, the way that he, you know, the way that people come and go and some of the things that he said, I, I don't think there's a day in America I would have thought that I would have heard a president say some of the things that he said. But where do you, you I mean, you tie it back to his parents in the book, all the president's uh, women. Um, and by the way, um, you can, the book is available on Amazon.com. Uh, and please, please, please visit um, uh, Miss Alfazi's website, MoniqueAlfazi.com, learn about her bio. Uh, she's got two books available there uh, that we mentioned at the top of the podcast. Uh, I, I strongly encourage you to link uh, w- up with her on Facebook, Instagram, and, and Twitter uh, and engage her in these conversations. Uh, you will do yourself a disservice by not um, uh, purchasing um, uh, her book available also on Hatch, uh, Hatchet Book Group uh, website. Um, and, and so that goes to my question, right? Is that where... <clears throat> He's a hard guy to figure out, right? Where do you, what do you think his motivations are? I guess he, he seems to have an undefined presency. Motivation. What do you, what's, what's his I end game? He, at I, the I, end I, I of guess. the day, is a businessman and it's a mm-hmm. zero sum game. There's a winner and there's a loser, and he will do whatever he has to do to win. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he's, he comes from the construction business, which is a pretty rough and tumble business in New York and very linked to the mob. And, you know, Trump Tower mm-hmm. was made, you know, this is pretty well documented. Trump Tower, his first big project in New York, or one of his first big projects in New York was made out of concrete, which wasn't, I'm not a construction expert, but wasn't sort of, you know, the 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 norm at the time. And, and the, <laughs> right. the concrete that was used in his building was very much tied to the mob at the time. We have, there's some stuff about this in the book. So he is you know, he is, he has that mob mentality. And what's interesting about that to me is he also, just like the mob has its own morality and its own set of rules, I think Trump has his own morality and his own set of rules. It's just much more like mm-hmm. a mob boss than, you know, than than anything that I think most people recognize as, as mm-hmm. morality. But, um, 
you know, also just to get back to the question of is this the party of Lincoln, I would argue that it isn't even still the party of George W. Bush. And, you know, he is one of the most conservative presidents we've had in a very long okay. time. And, Makes you know, sense. I think, you know, and he calls Trump out, right? I, I don't think this party is recognizable to anybody right now. Mm-hmm. Well, it mm-hmm. is, but not to the mainstream Republican base that mm-hmm. was always at the heart of the party. Gotcha. So, so um, switching gears a little bit, tell, tell us a little bit about your 501c3, your relief organization, and working Usalama. Uh, there. Yeah, so we've actually, uh, we wound it Kenya? So that, it, that came about um, about 15 years ago okay. uh, when my second son was born. His preschool teacher was from Kenya, from this little village called Usalama, and his sister died in childbirth, leaving mm-hmm. a baby around the same age as my son who's now 15 and I said to him oh you know we should send over mm-hmm. clothes you know we just we wanted to help the baby and uh, and I thought let's not just make this a one-time thing why don't we do some kind of exchange where I was living in Tribeca at the time which was you know a sort of you know very comfortable community in mm-hmm. lower Manhattan and I said you know why don't we send over clothes and things and raise money for them and our kids can learn about the culture and he said to me, well, you know, what they really need is water. Um, he said, kids walk. There's no water source in the village. Mm-hmm. Kids are charged with walking 10 kilometers back and forth to get water from the nearest town. And they get run over by cars. They get killed all the time. Kids are dying from dysentery. Mm-hmm. You want to do something meaningful, forget about the clothes. You need to bring water to the village. So, um what we thought we would do is, you know, raise $30,000 and build a borehole well, and and that would be fantastic. We had um, a hydrogeological survey done, and the water table there was so low, there was no way to access it with a, with a well. So we ended up building um, a pipeline. I can't remember how many mm-hmm. kilometers it was, but, you know, uh, maybe it was 10 kilometers or 12 kilometers, a long pipeline. Um and bringing water to the community. And we helped expand the school. We bought uniforms in Kenya. There used to be a law saying that you needed a uniform to go to school. That law is no longer in effect, but in fact, kind of practically it is. Teachers still won't let kids in often without uniforms. So we bought uniforms. We um, bought malaria nets to help wipe out malaria. We did a bunch of stuff in the community. But there's also a thing in development wow. where for projects really to to be effective in the long term, they need to be self-sustaining. You can't just go into a village and buy a bunch of stuff for a bunch of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was and they were very wary, wary when we came into the village mm-hmm. because there had been an NGO earlier that had tried to, you know, work in the area. And what they did, and this is kind of classic um development they bought a tractor for them and said you know isn't this great you have a tractor you can plow your fields but it was a european tractor and when things broke they had no way of fixing the tractor right and that's kind of a classic thing that happens so what you want to do is have things be locally sourced locally controlled and have a way of making it self-sustaining so you know we went in and we did what we could but we also set up systems so that the village would generate money for itself and be able to take care of itself. And so once we felt like we had put that in place, we pulled out. So we unwound 
we unwound it about six or seven years ago. Um, but we were there for nine, maybe eight to nine years. And it was an incredibly mm. rewarding experience. Um, and it also wow. made me see how easy it is to make a difference. It just wasn't that hard to do. And we brought water to a village. We, mm -hmm. you know, drastically reduced the number of people that were dying from dysentery. We wiped out malaria, you know, the year that we bought the malaria nets, there was not a single malaria death. And it just wasn't that hard wow. to do. It was a really, it was a, it was. Wow. We, we need more goals. We need more global citizens like you. Like, I mean, you're just, it's just phenomenal. The more I learn about you, the more um, impressive we need. And we well, need uh, more le leaders like, 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 like you. No, but I I mean, mean, it, we you were, make it sound so well, casual. Uh, I, mean, um, I mean, I think you're giving and me yeah, you've changed so many lives. One of the things that made it possible was that we had a tie to the village, right? My son's preschool teacher was mm. from the village. It wasn't like we just sure. threw a dart and picked a place and said, we're going to go help these people. Right. We had somebody who understood the culture, sure. who understood how the society worked, who understood who was in charge there, who could get mm. things done. I think it's really important mm. that things, you know, you can't be the, you know, privileged person coming in and superimposing your ideas on a community. It needs to come from them. And uh, we couldn't have done it without sure, him absolutely. and right. his tie to the community and his knowledge of the community. But there seems to be a red thread here, right, between uh, the book and your work um, there in Kenya and, um, you know, what's happening in America right now with uh, the, the plight of African-Americans here. There seems to be this red thread, right, is that and, and you made you just made a very powerful statement is that you can't not come in as the benevolent savior um, and putting a Band-Aid on a systemic wound. Um, and, and it is, as you say, just that simple is empowering people to be self-sustaining. Right. And that's one of the ways that I look at the book that you read, even though the topic, uh, the subject matter is, it's very unsettling. It seems to be not just a stance, but also a, a, a blueprint on how to unmake predators as, 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 you know, as, as men, as our gender, and then also how to um, give courage to those women to have the ability to speak up when, um, you know, something happens, you know, it's interesting. I have a sister that's younger than me and, and um, uh, she's a very, I tease her and say she's a very um, Angela Davis type of woman. She weighs all of about 98 pounds. Right. And, when I talk to her um, and listen to her story, she's working on her PhD, very intelligent, very go-getter um, uh, consultant, has worked for large firms. She began to tell me about four years ago some of the um, things that happened to her in the workplace. And, and, and Monique, you know, I'm not, um, it's interesting when you hear it from other people, you tend to not believe it. But when she started expressing some of the propositions um, that that were presented to her, it, it, I was infuriated, not just because of the fact that she was my sister only, but because I just 
I just couldn't believe the lack of of just morality from people in power, right? Uh, and it wasn't until I had met one of her lead consultants uh, at the airport, uh, who was a married man um, in, of power and a man of color. And he, the way that he looked at my sister and spoke to my sister was, it was enough for me to, you know, have a conversation, right, about professionalism. I, I just can't imagine, um, I mean, I can't imagine what what women are going through and those stories that are being told. And in, and in your book, uh, you, you know, that you contribute to with, with Barry Levine, that you guys have really laid out a blueprint on how to dismantle, I believe, how to identify and dismantle um, this institution that allows these types of behaviors and attitudes um, to exist. Is there is there any call to action that you would have for those who would want to be an ally um, as 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 they you know not only read through the book but any resources that you know of to where people can you know sort of um, battle these types of behaviors you know on the local level in their corporations. Um, in because you have you're well versed in, and, um, and and if I and if I'm incorrect, correct me. But you do understand, you know, policy. Uh, you from 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 a perspective based on based on your background. Um, what policies is it going to take for us to uh, correct uh, this cancerous? Um, I'm gonna respond to that institution by that allows us to happen much more basic than policy and it's something that it addresses a lot of what you just said um and i think it is the antidote to both what we see happening with gender in america and what we see happening with race in america and i think i think that um the hardest mm -hmm. thing to do but the most important thing to do is to get to understand that your perspective is your perspective and to try and understand the other right and to realize that their perspective is different when the whole mm -hmm. kavanaugh hearings happened i came across a video that's still on my facebook page somewhere if people are interested and it was a man saying i realize now that i did things to women that i had interactions with women that felt fine to me, that I realize now probably felt coercive to those right. women, probably felt frightening to those women, probably did not feel okay to them. And I apologize for that. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think people, particularly men right now, you know, or, or mm -hmm. in the Kavanaugh era, felt really judged. And and I think that, I, I, I thought that man's statement was really powerful because you know what? We don't understand each other, right? I mean, you know, we have a hard enough time understanding our kids, our spouses, our friends. Right, right. It's, it's really, you can't expect everybody to understand everybody else. But I think right. what's important and what I found really admirable in that man was the mm -hmm. realization that what felt one way to him might not have felt and probably didn't feel that way to somebody else. And I think that if we can right. get there, right. if we can understand, if white people can understand that 
you know, I, I hear all the time, you know, I have the same rights, you know, white people saying black people have the same rights I have. Well, maybe in on paper, but certainly not in, in reality. Right. And I think if you if we as society can mm-hmm. learn to understand that other mm-hmm, people, that's right. women, people of color, whoever are experiencing and that could, you know, liberals need to understand this about conservatives, that people are experiencing a reality that is different than yours and one that is equal of respect and and worthy of understanding mm-hmm. i think that that is at the very basis of all of this right and if we are forming policy out of that understanding if we learn to accept others for where they are then i think we're you know it's like you know it's like the multi-gender bathrooms that people are so, so upset about you know what let people be where they are my when, when the gay marriage mm-hmm. debate, you know, this right. was probably 15, 18 years ago. I don't know how long ago, right. uh, no, probably 15 right. years ago, right. when the gay bar- marriage debate right. was really raging right. in the United States. There was a big billboard in New York. I had a son who was like four or five at the time, and it just mm-hmm. six maybe. And there was a big billboard in New York that said, don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married. And my son was like, you know, like, like it was just the most logical thing in the world to him. And, you know, um, so I, you know, right. like, no, I right. don't do it. Um, right. so, you know, so I think that I think acceptance <laughs> and understanding, I mean, that sounds like, you know, these kind of airy fairy ideals, but I think, you know, there's what I've really tried to teach my kids and what I try to live by. I, you know, I think that that is those, those ideas are essential. And then the policies that we develop come out of that, the policies that we develop need to you know i think gay marriage is one of them right mm-hmm. i think that you know accepting others and not trying mm-hmm. to force right. them to fit right. into our mold i think policies that enshrine those ideas and those values are good policies mm-hmm. and i think they benefit everybody and i think there's a lot of fear at, at the core right. of all of this right people are afraid of people who are different from us and um Maybe mm-hmm. if we can, gosh, I feel like I should be singing Kumbaya. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but if we can learn to accept right, and maybe right, understand right. and try and, you know, walk a day in somebody else's shoes, I think that that's going to go a long way. And I think what's heartening now, and also what I said, what was heartening right. in the book, when, you know, when I, the last few chapters, I talked I talk to a lot of feminists who were, you know, a, 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 you know, outraged by Trump. And what was really interesting, and I tried to be very careful in the book to talk about white feminists, because when Trump came to power and there was the, you know, the Women's March on Washington and white women mm-hmm. were outraged, women of color were like, you're just figuring this out now? <laughs> you know, like, and, and they were like, we've been fighting this fight for a really long time. Right, right, and nobody's right, been, right. you know, the resources that you as white women have, imagine what we could have done had mm-hmm. we had those resources. So... You know, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of people are wearing blinders, and I think that the Trump presidency, certainly for women, helped white women mm-hmm. understand that their their colored sisters had been living something that they had been oblivious to for a long time. And I think we, mm-hmm. I was just going to say, I think we see that mm-hmm. happening now. And that's now the. With these Black Lives Matter marches. I think that a lot of white people are finally Mm -hmm. understanding it's not just, Mm -hmm. you know, an I, you know, one or 10 or 50 isolated incidents of 
black men being killed, abused by the police. And these are the ones that we hear about, right? I think they're understanding. I think they're starting to understand that this mm-hmm. is a much mm-hmm. bigger, deeper mm-hmm. systemic problem. Right. And, it, and, it, and to, to, to correlate this to the book, because what I found where I could really identify with, with, with the book, right, is, is how we go after the victim, right? How we go after that person, whether it's a, you know, when you talk about George Floyd or you talk about Ahmaud Aubrey, which, you know, I've done what Aubrey does. I've gone for a jog and there's been a building, a house put up. I've done it too. That, you know, I like, and I may go in and look at the house, you know, structuring, structuring it. And we're not even talking about, right? And we haven't, I mean, we're not even talking about police, you know, people that have been sworn to protect. We're talking about private citizens, by the way. Um, but, but, but we have this idea, you know, of where we blame the victim. We look for something on the victim. Like we'll say, well, you know, they'll tell people of color, um, you know, well, if you just don't resist the police, then, you know, uh, you'll be able to walk from that incident. And that's just not true. Just like we tell women that, well, you know, yeah, okay, you say that this person's a sexual predator, but then why were you in the hotel room? Or why did you wear this certain skirt? Or why did you, you know, it just seems that that's what really resonated with me in the book was this idea that somehow, right, right. Um, and that was, you know, we asked for it, <laughs> right? Sorry. I mean, you know, that was that, one that we, of the saddest things. No, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Book was I had, I had a couple of days where it was just really difficult. I mean, a lot of days where it was difficult, but there were a couple of days where I was reading mm-hmm. these stories of these women, you know, these transcripts that Barry had sent over. And so many of the women, if not all of them, but most of them ended their interviews by saying, you know, I stopped wearing short skirts. I stopped going here. I stopped doing this. And they all, or most of them again, looked at themselves to see what they had done wrong, what they had done to bring on that unwanted encounter. When you read them, you know, one after another, you know, dozens and dozens mm-hmm. and dozens, and you see the similarities, you but you also realize it has nothing to do with that woman. It, it is it's hard. He yeah. was a predator. This is how he behaved. And if it wasn't the what you know, if it wasn't mm-hmm. Susie standing there, it would have been Mary standing there, right? It would have and it, it's not about the women, it's about predatory behavior it's about you know like you said attitudes of entitlement and it's about a society that lets men think that this is okay it's mm-hmm. about systems that protect them it's about all that and i think you know i think again that's what we need to understand that that uh, you know jane doe didn't bring it on herself because she wore a short skirt she should be allowed to wear a short skirt that's her right and you know, Ahmed Aubrey didn't bring it on himself by, you know, jogging. He should be allowed to jog. He is allowed to jog. That mm-hmm. that this, when we blame the victims because it's easier than mm-hmm. dismantling our institutions, it's easier than really doing the work that needs to be done. And also we do it because right. it protects good point. us. If I am a woman and I see somebody else who was sexually assaulted i can say oh she was wearing a skirt that was too short that won't happen to me because i wouldn't do that right if i'm a black person i it's a way of protecting ourselves from the realization that that Mm -hmm. could be us well folks we are talking to one of the authors of all the president's women 
uh, Donald Trump and the making of a predator. Uh, Miss Monique Elfazy, uh was one of the co-authors along with Barry Lee. Um, these are two uh, veteran journalists uh, who tell the story of, of Trump from the point of view of the women in his orbit wives, mistresses, playmates, and those whom the president has dated, kissed, groped, or lusted after. Uh, I strongly encourage you to uh, pick up a copy of the book available on Amazon. It's also available on Hatchet Book Group um, on their website and audible.com. Um, there are about 45 new allegations of sexual misconduct against President Trump. But here's the thing, folks, about this book. It gives you a really uh, intimate understanding of predatory behavior. Uh, it helps us understand how we can uh, not just do better as a nation, but also how we can do better as as global citizens. Uh, you will do yourself a great service by expanding your understanding from first person accounts of the person that we've elected uh, to run the United States of America. Uh, Monique, it has been a pleasure um, talking to you. Every time I talk to you, I learn something new, uh, not only about you, um, but about uh, those uh, ways that I can actually uh, pitch in and become an ally uh, against this type of behavior. Is there anything um, in, in closing that yeah, you I mean, would the like one thing I would to say is that, um, tell our listeners? I just want to be clear that we also spoke to people who like Trump and to women who had positive encounters with him because we wanted to understand mm -hmm. him as fully as we could and paint as robust a picture mm -hmm. as we could of him. And so, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of the negative, but there are people who have nice things to say about him. And, uh, and I think it's important to, to listen to mm -hmm. those voices also. Um, you know, just, just to get a full picture of him. Because mm -hmm. I think that, okay. you know, our media today is so polarized. It's so, it's so, you know, everything is a polemic. It's you're on this side or you're on this side. Yes. And, and we tried yes. really hard not to do that with this book. Mm -hmm. I did find in the book that it didn't, it's not a Trump bashing book. It's, it's really an academic look at what makes yeah, what I, has made yeah, Donald I, Trump the person yeah, he is I understand today. It still, but um, it still still boggles the mind. But uh, but Gene, I've really enjoyed talking <laughs> to you. Also, the past few conversations. Uh, it does. It yeah, does. Thank you. Thank you for your interest in the book. And oh, also, thank, thank you, you so much for your time. No problem. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you for actually asking me. So um, I, I just really like you did really you guys really did take a balanced approach to the book. And there were people in the book that um, that like Trump, like you said, just thank you. What's, so let me ask you this uh, one final thought. What's next for you? What's your next project that you're uh, working on? That, two and a half weeks. We know that the book is going to be released there in Paris. Um, in how many weeks? So I'm pretty consumed by that. I am working on another okay. book that is okay. completely, completely different that I it's a little too soon to start talking about. But okay. um, it is it's got nothing to do with okay. Trump or politics at all. Oh, no worries. No so, worries. Uh, but uh, it's a little too soon. Well, as soon as that book is ready, as soon as that book is, as soon as you're ready to talk about that book, we'd love to have you 
uh, come back uh, on the program and and talk about that book and 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 really that. continue just to uh, help so broaden our minds, if you will. You too. Thank you so much. Bye.